This Choircast podcast is brought to you by There Once Were Orange Groves, an upcoming autofiction novel by David Giles. This is a novel about two siblings, Audrey and Jacob, who are both grieving the sudden passing of their father. This bad news arrives soon after Audrey moves out of California and Jacob returns home from college. This book explores how each of them deals with their grief as it colors their day-to-day lives. It's a novel about stories, finding beauty in the little things, and the places those moments inhabit. Available on Amazon on September 19th. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Yes, it is the Heretic Happy Hour, and we are so very glad that you have joined us for this amazing episode and a brand new series. We are so excited about it. Um, that's right. We're calling it, I think, Right to Fab for Florida. Yes. And if you can't guess from the name, it's a little bit to do with uh, our friends in the drag uh, community and, uh, and trans and things like that, and queer. So it's it's awesome with amazing uh, guests. It's it's fantastic. Trust me. Um, but let's quickly introduce ourselves and jump right into it. My name is Keith Giles. I'm one of your many co-hosts. Uh, I am the author of the Jesus Un series on deconstruction and reconstruction and recently released the, uh, the book Solideos, What If God is All Oh, so much heresy. And I am joined by my fabulous co-hosts, um, Katie, Shonda, and sometimes Matt. Introduce yourselves and say hello. Hello, everyone. This is Katie. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Community on Facebook. I like talking about all things woo and spirituality and gender and gender identity. So I could not be more thrilled to um, talk to all of our wonderful guests and get get very deep into the heart of this series. And I'm going to be making puns. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Shonda Ja. I'd love it if you found me over on my Substack, where I write about joy in justice. Thought I would mention that because it fits in with this series and because I too am too fab for Florida. Yes, indeed. And I am sometimes Matt, also known as Matthew DiStefano, the author of The Wisdom of Hobbits. And I am here to tell everyone that we have an exciting new podcast. Can you believe it? But it is exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. Mm. So once a month, we are going to be have uh, going to be having one-on-one interviews with each other going deep on topics that we may not get into on Heretic Happy Hour uh, on the regular. So if you are interested in doing a deeper dive into your lovely hosts, then uh, sign up at patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. In addition to all that, there's all the regular bonus stuff that you have on there. And I hear there's like a remission of sins. Different tiers (laughs) will unlock different (laughs) blessings from the Lord above. So again, it's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And I am excited to get into this. Keith, why don't you introduce the series and the why behind it? Yes. Well, yes, I'll do that. Super excited. Yes. So the Two Fab for Florida series, uh, as we have envisioned it, is uh, the idea is to lift up the gifts and the wisdom of the people uh, in our community as a counter narrative to the assault on queer and trans and drag uh, people. And so we have some incredible people that have come have agreed to come on and share their story with us. Um, a lot of them uh, drag queens and uh, doing incredible work, you know, activism. 
Um, and it really is a counter narrative. So super excited about this. Uh, they have so much spiritual wisdom and practical wisdom um, and fighting back with resistance and joy and laughter. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. So we are very, very excited about this brand new series. Our first guest in the series is actually not a drag queen. You are going to love, love, love this guest. If any of you are Slate.com fans, and if you're not, you absolutely should be. So get on to Slate.com. This is actually the voice of one of the advice columnists on Slate.com previously. So if you're a fan of Dear Prudy, like me, you're really, really going to love our heretic this week. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, everyone. I'm Danny Lavery, and I'm your Heretic of the Week. Hi, You guys were not kidding about that being a beleaguered mom. <laughs> you weren't sounding like that a few minutes ago. This, you're, you you're in good company with a lot of previous heretics. Yes. Oh, we are thrilled in actuality to have you here, yes. uh, Daniel. Just amazing... Uh, amazing heritage. I think I had mentioned that um, whenever anyone is asking my partner questions about uh, transition, he always recommends your book um, as like, if you want to get your head around it and also have a good laugh at the same time, that's the book to read. So just amazed by um, all the things that you have created, helping uh, co-found the toast, helping uh, uh, being um, dear prudence for so many years, having written just uh, exceptional New York Times bestselling books uh, and and shaping a lot of discourse around things that really matter. So before we go too much further, I wonder if you'd be willing to tell us who you are and where you come from. Any of your background you'd like to drop in there? Yeah, I'd be really happy to do so. Uh, I, as, as you mentioned, I'm a writer. Um, I write uh, primarily online, but I also write books and occasional longer freelance pieces. I've been a writer for a while now. Um, Some of my work touches on religion, not all of it, uh, not all the time. And I think I have a fairly, at this point in my life, uh, friendly but distant relationship with religion in the sort of way you might with a neighbor that you don't uh, necessarily want to like have over for dinner all the time, but you enjoy (laughs) outside. Um, I did, you know, come from a fairly religious background. Uh, my parents were both ministers uh, growing up, or like minister adjacent in, in my mother's case. Um, and uh, I went to an evangelical Christian college in suburban Los Angeles, which I do not recommend. Uh, and um, uh, you know, I'm trying to think about it just in terms of like, what's what's interesting other than just like, I used to be religious and and now I'm not. <laughs> which I suppose just sort of like the bare basic outline. And it is as good a summary as any, really. I, I don't know why I feel the need to sort of like evade the the sort of thrust of the plot. Um, but, uh, you know, partly grew up in the Midwest, partly in California, evangelical, uh, sort of generally non-denominational uh, would have been uh, the the best descriptor for, for my sort of um, experience with like denominations. Um I'll stop there. I'll pause there. That's a good overview. Um, we can cut this if it's uh, if it's unkosher. But may may we also lift up your time as dear prudence? Because um, uh, I'm a lift away. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan of advice columns that are not um, like Ann Landers, 
And so, dear Prudence, like when when you were in that role, definitely fit that. I'm also a big fan of Carolyn Hacks. And so, I'm just really curious if anyone doesn't know this. This is a Slate, a Slate.com column. What was it like being being Prudence? And how did how did you get that gig? I'm just yeah, really I was curious. curious. How did, how did and, that happen? <laughs> yeah, and like there's one there's just one there's one question that I just remember from years ago um, where someone wrote in asking you about baptism, and I thought. It's an odd question to send to an advice columnist. It was kind of, I can't remember the, the, the whole question, but it was, uh, it was along the lines of like, yeah, my parents like really want me to get my kid baptized. Like, should I, even though I don't care about this or something like that. And so at the time I didn't know you were coming from this particular background. Yeah. Yeah. That does ring a slight bell. I, I think you're right that that's not the kind of question that comes up as often in advice columns as it might have in, say, the 50s and 60s. Um, but I, I think it does sort of fall generally under the rubric of uh, religious etiquette. Um, and so I think I think part of the concern on the letter writer's part was a sort of feeling a little torn between, on the one hand, if I really don't believe, is it any skin off of my nose to go through with a christening or a baptism? Um, I can't remember now which one it was. I think it was infant. So like if it was baptism, it wouldn't have been like, you know. It wasn't uh, a choice, believers, baptism. It wasn't like a denomination where they make you be like, you know, 12 or something. And you have to sort of like go through a series of uh, like conversations or classes. It was like, we're going to sprinkle some water on a baby. And so it was, yeah, yeah, sort of like, (laughs) it's the polite thing to do to just say like, sure, why not? It'll make you happy. Do I have sort of grounds to uh, take a sort of different kind of stand? Uh, Is it? you know, who's, who's rude? What can I do without being rude? Um, and, and so I think that was probably part of why the letter writer had thought, I'll, I'll check with an advice columnist, see if they're sort of like received common wisdom about the politest way to handle differences in religious, uh, outlook. Um, and, and I think it's a, a useful one too, because oftentimes, sometimes people can sort of default to, well, if it doesn't matter to me, but it does matter to you, maybe the easiest thing to do is just do what you want. Um, not everyone does this, obviously. This is not a universal problem, but it, it can come up in, in that context. So, yeah, I was a, a, the Dear Prudence advice columnist at Slate for a, a little less than five years. Um, I'm never great with dates, so I couldn't swear to you if it was like 2016 to 2021 or if I'm off by a year in either direction. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a column that's been around now since the late 90s. So it had been in existence for quite some time before I got a chance to take a crack at it. Um, and it was totally serendipitous. It was not something that I had been expecting or looking for. Uh, I had gotten an email from the then editor in chief at Slate at the time, uh, really out of the blue, just saying our current dear prudence is going to be moving on. We are looking at new candidates. Do you want to throw your hat in the ring? Uh, which felt a little bit like, do you want to audition to be Santa Claus? It was just, <laughs> as, as you know, mostly people who become advice columnists, uh, the, the sort of big name ones, your, your Ann Landers, your Dear Abbeys, your, your Ask Carolyn's and so on. They do it for, you know, if not decades, a, a lifetime. Sometimes, again, especially in the Abbey and Ann Landers cases, you know, it, it becomes a family affair and it's like passed down to children or nieces. Um, and, and so it's not often that a job becomes open. Um, so it was really unexpected. It was really, really fun. Um, I'm also a big fan of reading advice columns. I enjoy them immensely. Um, and it was lovely. Obviously it was also, um, a lot of work and, uh, you know, 
challenging and complicated, but it was also just really delightful. And uh, I, I still kind of can't believe I got to have such a wild job like that for, for such a long time. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. How long did you do that? Five years. Okay. Just about. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had mentioned somewhere between 2016 and 2021. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So on the subject of writing in, in the book, something that may shock and discredit you, you engage in retellings of biblical narratives as ways of illustrating gender transition. So for an audience like ours, what thoughts do you have on the connection between the stories we grew up with and our evolving relationship to understanding general in general, gender in general, or our own gender journeys? You know, I I think as always, I want the sort of prevailing tone to be like, others abide the question, thou art free. Because it's it's by no means, also, by the way, you will occasionally hear the clicking of little paws. My dogs are in the room with me and they they need their nails trimmed, but they won't do it. So um, that might occasionally pop up. Uh, I respect their right to choose about their nails. So I get it. (laughs) (laughs) My right to put it off. Um, (laughs) You know, it it struck me as interesting and worth doing. It it, it wasn't the sort of thing where it felt like, oh, I must grapple with these stories before Mm -hmm. I do it. Um, Or like, you know, I didn't want it to sort of feel too on the nose. Like, you know, who else, you know, uh, changed their name in a meaningful way yeah. was Jacob after wrestling with the angel and let that be a lesson to you all. <laughs> um, it, it was more that a, a lot of my writing has always been sort of um, based in or interested in pastiche. I, I, that's what I do. I, I often like retell or refashion or reshape or inhabit the voices of different writers or stories. Um, so that was already something that had been a part of my work for a long time. Um, and certainly for something like a, a memoir, which was engaging a lot with my own histories and, and with my own um, sort of formative stories and experiences, the Bible was was just, it was necessarily going to be a big part of that. That was a big part of my life growing up. So again, I don't want to make it sound either like I felt it necessary or I had to find some sort of like biblical justification for transition on the one hand. Uh, nor do I want to make it sound like, oh, it was totally incidental. It's just because I happened to read the Bible a lot growing up. It, it felt more like this is one tool among many that I might use to sort of think through uh, a particular narrative or try to tell a particular story in various guises throughout my own history and the histories of others. So, uh, you know, the the Jacob and the angel comes up quite a lot Um Whereas the rest of the sort of biblical references, I think, are a little bit more incidental. I think Jacob and the angel is like the biggest one that I kept coming back to. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Greek mythology is also in there quite mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, uh, you know, Athena and Apollo show up at least as much as Jacob does. Yeah. So uh, it, it's not just one or the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I feel like I've seen you play with fairy tales. I've, yeah, there's there's a lot of... yeah. And it doesn't sound like you're saying the power of stories to transform so much as they're fun things to play with. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not really a power of the story kind of guy. I mean, I, I guess I just sort of think like, yeah, I think stories are interesting and important as a writer, but I, I don't find that an especially interesting statement on its own. So do with that whatever you will, I suppose, <laughs> um, uh, which is to say not much. Killing my entire political career, but that's <laughs> uh, Sorry about that. Uh, but feel free to ignore me. But you know, it's... <laughs> 
there's a lot of there there, I guess, is mostly what I want to say, in part because a lot of the biblical stories are quite brief um, or, or contain very little detail. They're very like um, they're very ripe for reading into or for uh, teasing out something that, that you find. Um, I can't think of another word for it fast enough, so I'm sorry. Resonant. Um, yeah. I do apologize for saying resonant um, to a bunch of, you know, current and former evangelicals, because I think we've probably all hit like a lifelong limit of <laughs> resonate and impact, but sometimes you can't think of a, a synonym yeah. fast enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, just like there's a lot of there there, which is not to say it's supposed to be a story about transition, but also it's like, you know, an unexpected grappling with like a mysterious doppelganger type divine figure that's followed by like a lifelong change in the body uh, with the touching of the hip and the change in his gait uh, and a new name. It's like, yeah, you know, it's like there's a big carrot under a box uh, and I'm like Bugs Bunny walking by and I'm like, oh, look, a big carrot. Like, uh, obviously I'm going to go in for that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Can't resist. I yeah. do, I, I do, I had, I do have to say there's, there, there's also something really, there's something really interesting about getting to take a story that we've been told is one thing and say, might be something else. I feel like there's something kind of like, I don't know, reclaiming, empowering, something like that, somewhere in the midst of that. Doesn't sound like that was necessarily your feeling about it, but I wonder if uh, for some folks there might be some of that. Yeah. And, you know, certainly I think like it is fairly, I, I don't know, I, I never want to, I want to be careful about how I speak about various religious traditions, because it's one thing to say, like, one person may have grown up in a church that tended towards sort of like, um, a, a non-reflective approach to scripture, but uh, it's also easy to turn that into like, oh, Christianity's only ever done this. Um, and I do think there are certainly plenty of Christian traditions about uh, reflecting on scripture and finding multiple meanings, uh, uh, even like medieval scholasticism, which was always looking for, you know, um, allegorical as well as literal, as, as well as theological implications in, in scriptural stories. Um, but certainly there's also like a, a pretty rich like Jewish tradition of reading as many possible interpretations into a story as possible and, and a shared history of annotation and dispute and argument and embroidery and um, conflict and addition. And, and so uh, I, I think that uh, there are a number of traditions that already do this. And so that's just part of the genre that I was working in rather than like, oh, I decided I was only told this one thing growing up and then I decided to add to it. I think, you know, for all that I have plenty of complaints to register about my own particular religious upbringing, I don't think I was raised in the kind of environment where it was sort of like a one and done, like this is what the story means, nothing else. Obviously, there were limits to how flexible that could get. Uh, certainly, we weren't like, you know, uh, Unitarians, but um, ni neither was it like just it's one, it's literal, it's infallible, it's this, it's nothing else. So, um, so somewhere in between those two, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Thank you. So I'm a, I'm a New Testament scholar and I just like literally click send last night for a book that I'm co-editing my article on Jesus's trans and the transfiguration in which I talk a lot about Greek and Roman myths. So in the next round of revisions, I have a feeling I shall be citing you. As someone who's oh, yeah. played with those stories, so I need to go and read those. So, um, um, because like a lot of people kind of search for transcestors, and I'm not, I'm not sensing that's what you were doing, but that you were going to be playful with these stories. So, how super cool! So, I'm, 
I'm, I'm prepared to be in dialogue with your writing now. <laughs> By the way, I, I, this isn't strictly New Testament, but if you need a little more to cite than just sort of general vibes, uh, my friend Colby Gordon, who's a professor at Bryn Mawr, um, uh, writes about medieval uh, depictions of like trans Jesus uh, uh, images um, and, and specifically had a paper come out earlier this year called The Sign You Must Not Touch, Lyric Obscurity and Trans Confession. And I apologize, by the way, it's it's Renaissance lyric more than like medieval imagery, but uh, there's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff going on. I think Colby's work might be interesting to you. Yes, it might it might merit a um, a footnote since it's like quite a bit after my time frame, but like in people kind of searching for um, for ancestors, um, in this unique yeah. way, so, um, super super cool. And Thank I like that I was like trying to get it closer by by calling the Renaissance medieval. I was like, that's not so far apart. <laughs> no, you're just you're remembering it the way you want. Um, it, you know, anything after about the year two hundred, and I'm kind of like, what? What's happening? Who's? I don't know. Yeah. yeah so yeah, um, I, I get it. Well, you know, it's it's sort of no secret that there's a ton of anti-trans, anti-drag legislation going on in in the U.S. right now, and I'm just kind of curious how have you been have you been processing, following that, um, and especially given your religious context, conservative religious context, growing up, um, you know, like, how are you interacting and and dealing with all of this current or current climate? Sure. Yeah, you know, I don't know that I have anything especially like new or insightful to say. Like, I think it's bad. Uh, you know, I don't like it. Um, in many ways, uh, you know, I live in Brooklyn in a, a fairly uh, safe neighborhood. Um, so not much of that legislation is like immediately personally threatening in a way that it is to others. But obviously, it still affects people that I know and care about. Um, and that's not to say that like I live in a, a, a winter wonderland. Um, of, of perfection. So uh, I guess I would say, like like I do with anything that's sort of like big, systematic, um, threatening, frightening, uh, some combination of where can I be helpful? Uh, what things can I just accept are like not in my power to change immediately and trying to find like an appropriate reaction that is neither I don't want to think about this, it's too scary, nor I've got to solve this all in the next five minutes or I'll be uh you know overwhelmed um but uh you know i i, I think that uh that's easier said than done right like oh just find the appropriate response and then do it uh and then let go sure easy <laughs> right if you find the appropriate response you know that's universal and we can dispense um dispense out there let us know <laughs> yeah. well i mean We'll share. I, Dear I know. Prudence. Dear Prudence, what, what is yes. the appropriate <laughs> yeah. So we, we talked about this a little bit over email, and I know I'm sort of like jumping the gun a little bit, but I think a pretty useful example uh, was, you know, with my own family history, like uh, when when I learned back in 2019 that my family of origin, the Ortbergs, were, you know, conspiring to hide my brother's and my father's pedophilia so that they could work with children and, and do so without any supervision. That was a pretty clear-cut example of like, well, what can I do about this? It was like kind of a lot, not by myself ever. Um, you know, it, it really did take a village to to uh, get my father unemployed. But it was that was a pretty straightforward case of I'm, I'm situated well for this. I, I have the information for this. I have the wherewithal to, to get it done. This one 
again, never like it's just me. It's like me only, but it's like I, I'm I'm in a position to do something pretty specific here, uh, and I should. Whereas other things that have to do with like legislation in a state I don't live in and haven't been to in over a decade, my ability to be effective there is going to be a little bit more limited. Uh, and so that's often just sort of a question of like, well, that that was a pretty clear cut example of like, I, I could do a lot here. This one, I'm qualified for this one. I, 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 have, I have the background. Um, whereas other ones, it's more, can I donate some money? Can I, uh, you know, volunteer with an organization that does more work there? Can I, uh, you know, accept that I'm not on the ground on that one. Yeah. Well, Danny, so you talk a little bit more about what you have been doing um, in that area. Cause you talked about, you know, you can, you can do something about it. Definitely are motivated to do something about it. Tell us a little bit about what kind of things you've been doing. Uh, just, you mean in terms of like more broadly anti-trans legislation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and specifically, I guess, too, because there is this intersection, you know, like our audience is very much coming out of the evangelical world, as you did. And, you know, we see what's really behind a lot of the legislation and the rhetoric that's out there um, is being driven by a, a very conservative Christian evangelical perspective, right? Um, and at the same time, we see these same churches, as you said, in your example, like covering up sexual abuse, um, acting like the real danger is somehow reading a story, having a drag queen read a story to a kid in a library. Um, mm -hmm. and the real problem is like, don't send your kids to church. Don't let them go to the, to the youth group because that's, you know, bigger chance they're going to be, they're going to face some dangers there, uh, in those situations. So like the hypocrisy and all that stuff, I'm just curious, like what kind of things are you doing and, um, to counteract that or to bring attention to that or, yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, some people I know who do some direct action support either for uh, uh, people accessing like healthcare and abortion clinics uh, or for drag queens or for libraries that are under threat. And those are, you know, there's there's needs for that also in New York City as, as anywhere. Um, and so those are some things that I've gotten to do in the last year, which has been meaningful. Um, and there's a handful of organizations as well that um, I know that like focus specifically on like um, trans legislation and, and like safeguarding healthcare and like civil liberties um, that are meaningful to get to donate to. Um, certainly, I think also like always a good one is like anything that you can do in your own uh, neck of the woods to try to end tax exemption for churches in the United States. I yes. think would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. You know, like a pretty, to, to me, that one feels like in terms of like personal religious expression or spirituality, I feel really like wide open and like there's plenty of room for recuperation or salvaging of a variety of traditions that should be available to anyone. But then just when it comes to like the uh, Christian evangelical church or even just the Christian church in the United States as like a political movement, that one feels really straightforwardly like that's my enemy. Like my, my hope and my responsibility is to try to dismantle and defeat it. Um, mm. And a huge part of that political work is ending tax exemption for churches, which is, yeah, you know, uh, anything that makes it harder to operate as a like behind the scenes uh, extra element of government. Great. Let's do it. Knock it out. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a few years ago I had a young friend, um, gosh, it's been like maybe 10 years ago, but he was seriously working um, with a friend of his who was a Senator. Uh, to, he, he was, he was trying to help him write some legislation to do exactly that, to overturn tax exemption for churches. Dude. And I was like, 
go, go, go. If there's any way to actually do that, I think that would be a great idea. Yeah. No, I didn't like, if nothing else, I think one of the things that's really funny is like, uh, tax exempt status, among other things, puts the IRS in the business of determining what a religion is, which mm-hmm. you would think is not in the best interests of religious people. Like you would feel like they would say, I don't really want the IRS making that call. But, you know, of course, because it's it's financially beneficial, you don't hear quite as many objections as you as you think you might otherwise. Yeah. So here's what I find very fascinating about this whole tax exemption thing is that Jesus said, pay your taxes. Paul says, pay your taxes. But somehow Christians in America have gotten the idea that it's like some God-given right that you don't have to pay taxes. Like, I, it doesn't make any sense. They don't get it from Jesus or Paul or the New Testament, but they've, they've got it in their in their heads that uh, that somehow, like, it's God's will that they shouldn't have to pay taxes. You know, it's so interesting. I, I remember this as a sort of strategy from, from my own days at, like, Christian college when I was uh, probably more close to that sort of general like recuperative sense of like what does liberal christianity look like or what is like authentic christianity look like um and and so often there would be a sort of like rhetorical movement of like well jesus actually said this or the early church actually did this as a sort of gotcha and it sort of had this collective effect of like I don't know, throwing a, a, a whipped cream pie at somebody. Mm-hmm. I, I've never met an evangelical who, or, or like a right-wing conservative Christian who hears like Jesus actually said or did this, or like according to Acts, the church right. should be holding all its property mm-hmm. in communion, or in community rather. They right. never say, like, oh God, you're right. Like, oh, you, you really got me. Like that's been hypocritical. I got to reassess. They just, they don't care. Um, it doesn't damage them. It doesn't surprise them. It doesn't jolt them. They don't feel like hypocrites. And so I think it's a pretty ineffective weapon, um, which <laughs> doesn't necessarily seem intuitive, right? You think like, this is their guy. Here's what he said. You know, you sort of think, and well, they I don't care. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. I don't no. have a good theory as to why. I'm sure somebody has given this a lot of thought um, or, or what might be a more effective strategy. Just, I think... Um, it's a sort of thing where like it doesn't bother them. They don't worry about it. Uh, it, it doesn't trouble their worldview in the least. Um, nope. They don't feel like they're misrepresenting Jesus. They feel like they're right on board, um, right. which is a shame. I wish, you know, I, I wish uh, I wish I had a better answer than that. But I, I just think for whatever reason, it doesn't bother them. <clears throat> That's right. Unless, like, have any of you, like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like that's No, sort of, totally. Like, I've, I've written a lot about that. Water off yeah. a du- of a duck's back. No, I've written a lot about that too. I think I think what I find is like you were saying, yeah. if Jesus happens to say something that they think um, aligns with ideas they already have, they're happy to quote that and hammer that and say, "Jesus said, you know, go and buy a gun, right? Go and go and buy a sword. Ha ha! See, that's why it's okay. The Second Amendment, blah blah blah." But if you point out the other things that contradict, that seem to contradict things that they believe, like you said, well, that was another time. He, that, you know, that was a parable. He didn't mean that or, you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, it's, 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 they're very slippery in that way. And like you said, it's pretty ineffective, uh, as a way I think of changing their mind about things. Cause they, like you said, they just don't really, ultimately they don't really care. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Cause I do feel like a lot of this is wrapped up in, um, you know, when we did that series, uh, back in gosh, about a year ago on, um, you know, church scandals. Um, yeah. The theme that kept showing up over and over again was 
it had very little to do with, um, well, whether it had anything to do with religion or not, it had a lot to do with um, upholding a concentration of power, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think there was a recurring theme of patriarchy being re- very much wrapped up in that. Um, and I do think that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the folks in in our audience have bumped into that in really tangible ways. Have had the experience of not just the hypocrisy and inconsistency of church, because yeah, but with the exploitation of religion for the sake of uh, concentrating power for some at the expense of others. I know, Daniel, you did at the time did a fair bit of writing about kind of of what you were doing to disrupt that very much on the home front. Do you have any advice for folks um, having gone through that and having it not necessarily in the rearview mirror because family's always, you know, yeah, family's never passed. But do you have any advice? based on your experiences? Because I think from my perspective, what you did was you make it sound like obviously it was what had to be done. And absolutely. And that's still terrifying because you're talking about very close family members. You're talking about, I don't know to what extent that community meant anything to you by then, but it does mean creating barriers to that community yeah, so so at the time I was not a member of uh, Menlo Church or any church, but I had spent the last two years of high school and, and much of college attending that church. Um, I'd made a lot of friends there. I'd sung in the choir in high school. Uh, obviously, I knew a lot of the people that my parents worked with, um, and I was quite close with my family. Uh, so it, it wasn't necessarily as disruptive as it might have been at another time in my life when I was uh, more uh, socially and, and uh, community. What's, I can't think of a word for having to do with community, I'm sure. Communally? Sure. There we go. Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> as as uh, entrenched in, in the church uh, uh, as I had been in the past, but uh, it, it was still pretty significant, certainly. Um, and uh, you know, for all that it was pretty um, distressing and pretty troubling and, and pretty daunting, um, I did feel like I had something that I sometimes referred to in the advice column as the gift of clarity. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes you are, are put in a really difficult situation and there's numerous complicating factors that make the sort of next move really difficult to figure out or really challenging to think like what would serve the greatest number of people or what would be you know, is this really the next right move or is this more about like an ego saving proposition? This one for, for all, like for all that it was incredibly hard, it it wasn't difficult. You know, Mm. it was as straightforward as it gets, which was just, uh, I, I have now been given reliable information that something incredibly unsafe is going on. Uh, it needs to stop. Um, and, and again, it wasn't even a question of like, uh, whether or not anything actionable had happened, just in terms of like the system of safeguarding here, not mm-hmm. good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it wasn't even like, oh, I've got to sort of weigh the difference between the condition of his heart versus the risk he's put children in so much as it, it, it was like if somebody was saying to me, oh, I drive kids around all the time and I never buckle their seats. I wouldn't feel like, oh, I need to figure out if there's been any car accidents. It was like, that is itself the violation. I don't need to wait until there's been a car accident and some kid goes flying through the windshield. Like what I know now is already uh, needs to stop immediately. Um, And so again, the question was just, I need to make sure that the entire church community has the same information that the Ortbergs have been trying to withhold uh, within just the family. And so the first port of call there was to, um, inform the elder board, everyone who worked with children on staff, um, uh, and to say, you know, you need to perform your own investigation. And then when it was clear that they were not actually going to do a substantive investigation, um, which would have necessarily included, for example, uh, an investigation that included the international missions trips that my brother had taken to visit children overseas, but it did not. Um, then it was like, all right, well, then the next step is take this to the church body. Um, if you are not going to do that, if you're also going to withhold information, um, then the next right thing is get the information out further. So that again, just felt really clear. And and for that, I was really grateful to the help and support of my, my wife, Grace, um, who, who was, you know, I, I can't say enough about how much of this credit goes to her and, and, and how responsible she was for, primary organizing, um, getting getting our priorities straight, figuring out how do we cover ourselves legally? How do we make sure that we're doing things in the correct procedural order? How do we separate personal feelings from, uh, you know, the importance of child safeguarding? What's the difference between being like personally upset versus what's right for the community and what information people need to have? Um, you know, so that was just totally invaluable. Um, but again, then it was just like really straightforward, like they're withholding important information. They're not conducting an appropriate investigation. Therefore, the next step is to escalate. Um, and, and so, again, I was just really grateful for the gift of procedure in that because so much of it, of course, felt just like personally daunting. It was as personal as it gets. It was my own family. Um, it felt personal. Um, and, and if I had just only had the personal to kind of guide me, I would have really flailed and, and felt quite lost. Um, and so it's really helpful to just, you know, when I would have days where it felt like, I don't know what I want. I want a million different things. Uh, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm in pain. It was just like, well, the thing that needs to happen is, uh, you know, a proper investigation into like the actual safeguarding of children at the hands of staff and volunteers in the church, and then a change in policy so that you, know, you can't get somebody who goes to the head pastor and says, I'm attracted to children and I so need to take them on overnight unsupervised trips that I'll kill myself if I can't do it. And the pastor says, thanks for letting me know. Sounds like a great plan. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> like that, that's not a, like, again, like when you, when you separate out all the personal stuff, it's like, is that a good policy? Would you stand up in the pulpit mm. and say, that's right. how we handle these things? Of right. course not. Of course not. Um, and so as painful as that last conversation with my father had been, where I was asking him those questions, it also felt just like gift of clarity. It was just like, I know you know this is not the right thing to do. I don't know why you're making these choices right now, um, but I, I have enough information to know that you are not in, uh, you should not be making these decisions. And if that means that uh, you know other people have to step in and remove your ability to make these decisions, then that's what we'll do. But um, I, I think back to 
that conversation we were having a minute ago about sort of like charges of hypocrisy don't don't really work uh, when it comes to the sort of like evangelical mind. Um, one of the things that I think I knew but didn't really realize until it happened um, was that same sort of like Teflon uh, understanding of right and wrong or, or, or rather one that attaches rightness and wrongness to personalities rather than to principles. And one of the things that I don't think I quite realized was the degree to which there would be people within the church who upon learning about first my father's abuse of his power to protect his son and later of the charges that my father himself raped a child uh, when he was the, the teaching pastor at Willow Creek Community Church in the 1990s. And it would make them like him more. Hmm. Uh, not, not just that they would want to hear both sides or, or let him have a fair defense, that they would, as a result of that information, find him more likable, more lovable, more appealing, um, more Christian, more important, more worthy of respect, care, and protection, um, that they would, in fact, so much beyond just like wanting to avoid dealing with pedophilia that they love pedophiles, um, that they want to nurture and protect them. And that, yeah, I, I wasn't ready for like, this was, this was going to like engender a fandom for him in a way that people who maybe ordinarily would have thought of him as just some pastor, maybe even too far to the left would now be, you know, I'm John Orberg Jr. Ride or die. Um, that was something that I think I knew intellectually, but when I saw it and was like getting constant messages from people who, who, who talked about him as if he were a child, as if I were an adult bullying a kid, that was how they experienced this, you know, 65 year old man who rapes children. Um, and so I think the degree to which church hierarchy and, and religious hierarchy um, is structurally invested in promoting and protecting pedoph pedophilia was. I really got to see that mm. first. And it's strong. It's strong. Yeah. Well, um, thank, just thank you for sharing all of that. Cause that's, um, it's a degree of vulnerability that we appreciate. And I know our listeners will too. And I also want to highlight that, although you said the action was very straightforward, like this is what needs to happen. The process you just described was actually very complex, which involves your own self-care, involving your wife, um, going to the church board or whatever they call it, and then the church body. Right? That, that all actually involves a lot of strategy. So I also want to point out to listeners that um, this kind of thing does have to be done with an immense amount of thoughtfulness and care in order to be effective and also not to burn out. I mean, it sounds like you were able to do that and, and hold yourself um, with some grace. Yeah, and again, it was so important that uh, my, my my wife, uh, our couples counselor, our uh, friends and colleagues, um, uh, lawyers that we spoke to, journalists that we spoke to, we had an immense amount of help. And again, it, it was really quickly like, who needs this information? Are they doing the right thing with it? And again, the right thing wasn't like, you agree with us, you like us. It was, you're doing a thorough investigation. You are not just like, asking a handful of people a couple of really vague questions without any detail and then saying, yep, sounds good. You know, the first investigation that the church did lasted about three weeks over Christmas. 
uh, and involved asking a handful of people some hypotheticals. Um, did not use any uh, of the identifying relevant details, like letting people know the you know volunteer in question uh, is is the pastor's son, which might have been you know relevant information in terms of do you think it's a good thing? Um, why do you think the pastor might be doing this? So then it was just really clear, like okay, we have to now escalate. Which it was not like oh we really want my brother's name to be printed in the paper, um, but if it's a question of his privacy versus like child safeguarding procedures, no question. Um, so again, it was really just helpful. And, and and same too is like, he had also volunteered extensively at various schools and through different music programs. And when we made all those reports there, it was really just like, thanks for letting us know we're escalating, we're investigating. If they were mandatory reporters, they filed their mandatory reports. There was no sort of like, like they brought the community in, they brought parents in, they were transparent from the beginning. It was only the church that really dragged its heels. Um, so we also had the good example of like, well, what did the local school do? The right thing. Um, <laughs> so it was just like, we have an example here of like, what would be the right thing to do? Not, uh, you know, again, it, was, it, it wasn't like, oh, be mad at them, be mean to them, treat them badly. It was uh, do the right thing regardless of how much you might like the person who's done something wrong. Um, and so again, just that just felt really clear. Like it, it was not like, oh, really hard to say who's in the right here. It was like, no, this is wrong. This is just so clearly wrong. Uh, you got to stop. And if these people won't stop you, we'll, we'll go to the next level. And luckily, you know, once you take it outside of the sort of immediate ring of people with the last name of Ortberg or people who are really deeply invested in the sort of maintenance of the, um, identity of the Orberg family, it was a pretty, pretty universal response outside of the church. It was like, yeah, that's not good. You got to stop doing that. Right. You got to make sure no one does that again. Well, and the, the twisted irony here is that a lot of anti-trans, uh, anti-LGBTQI legislation in general is based on the presupposition that they are predators. Right, that, that members yeah. of that community are predators, right? And so the, the irony is that that's so seldom the case in comparison to um, uh, cis-hetero cis men in power. Um, yeah, so, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, with that, um, with, with, that with, all of, with all of that heaviness, we would actually love to know where do you find joy these days? Um, and let that inspire our listeners for their own joy uh, as we all navigate all of these complexities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in some ways, I, I, you know, I hope this doesn't really sound flippant, but in some ways, I think it has made some room for more joy in my life, uh, where one of the sort of rubrics I can apply to a problem is like, well, is everyone pedophiles? No? Great. Not a problem. Like, we'll figure it out. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit, again, like, it's never a great sign when you're like, you know, just like the biblical Job, I am a man beset by troubles. But like, you remember how at the end of Job, he has a bunch of new kids and he names them all things like cinnamon and eyeliner. It feels a little bit like there's a renewed appreciation for, uh, you know, you can call it the frivolous, you can call it simple things um, that I think often can follow in the wake of like real dark nut of the soul shit. Um, but, uh, you know... Uh, and again, I don't want to say like, just decide to be happy and you'll be happy because I'm aware that that can also sound dismissive. But I do think in terms of um, if you look for joy and for things to be grateful about, you will find them, which is not the same thing as saying, and then you will feel good all day. Um, but that, you know, 
redirecting your attention and your will regularly and consistently in a particular direction gets results. Um, and so that's meaningful to get to do. Um, and, you know, I got two pretty ridiculous looking little dogs here. They're a lot of fun. Uh, I highly recommend getting ridiculous little dogs if you can. Uh, and, uh, you know, spending time with people, getting outside of the house whenever you can, um, finding things that you enjoy, uh, reading if you like to read, um, even just reading, you know, dumb, silly stuff. Uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, like it was the great bolt that fell across my life. It was horrifying. I loved my family and I found out something that not only made me feel like I, I wish so much you'd all just died in a bus accident, at least then I could remember you fondly, but it also felt like it retroactively contaminated every good memory that I had with them. And I don't mm -hmm. need to undervalue the sadness of that. But also then on the other hand, it was like, well, I found out something really sad. I did what I had to do to, to make sure that I could limit their ability to create more harm. I did that. Now they're not my problem. Um, I might wish that they would, you know, repent and turn their lives around, but I can't make that happen. All I can do is, you know, live my own life where I am. Um, and then a lot of other problems seem a little easier in, in, in light of that. Um, and, uh, I, I think, you know, there's, there's just a, still a lot of joy to be found no matter what situation you're in. And I don't, again, I, I really don't say that lightly and I don't mean it in terms of, and just decide to feel good every day. And you will just like, um, you never know when the bolt's going to come. You never know how heavy it's going to be. It's, it's going to eventually happen to most people, not necessarily this exact situation, but, you know, at the, at the very least, you and everyone you love will die, um, and you have to reckon with that. Um, and it's usually not all going to be at the exact same moment, so you have to kind of figure out how do you live with great loss and disappointment and grief that you didn't expect you'd be able to bear. Um, and that's just part of the work of being alive that everyone has to go through. So the good news is there's a lot of, you know, thought and writing and art about these very issues. So you're not alone in them. Um, and it is not like an accident or a mistake when they do happen to you. It, it can be part of and consistent with an ethic of uh, lightness and joy. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it really does come down to, you know, laugh with them that laugh, mourn with them that mourn. It's appropriate to do all of those things at different times. Um, and, and it is genuinely kind of remarkable that we get to. So I think that is something to be grateful for. I got to say, this is one of the things that I love about your writing is it is it is sometimes wacky and silly and surreal and playful and also, you know, meaningful and substantive and gives me a chance to say to ponder. But like, there's also a lot of just fun in it. And I really appreciate that. Um, so it's a gift you're giving to a lot of us. I really, yeah. So thank you for that. So you know that this series is called Too Fab for Florida. And so one of the questions we wanted to throw at you was, if you had a chance to say something to, say, Ron DeSantis right now, or as Matt refers to him, desanctimonious, uh, what would it be? I think that's a really useful question. And, and I say this with real seriousness. I don't think I would try to say something to him. I would try to harm him physically. Um, I would try to. Uh, you should be restrained. We all believe in anti-fascism here, so that's great. Yeah, like end his ability to cause harm to others, which would probably. You know, I'm not very physically strong, so I'd probably have to do something a little sneaky. Um, but uh, you know, if, if I'm in that situation, uh, I would try to cause him enough harm to permanently uh, render him unable to move in society, whether that meant death <laughs> or, or simply like a great, great. 
uh, desecration of, of his vocal apparatus um, <laughs> and hands and eyes. I would do those things. Genius. I appreciate it. Wow. Yeah, it is especially, uh, you know, when you see what what he's trying to do in Florida, essentially rewriting history, suppressing actual history and creating false narratives of history. Um, when you, when you realize that his, uh, his major in college was history, you realize that he knows exactly what he's doing. Like this is not some arbitrary thing where he doesn't know it. No, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's trying to create something, um, that continues and perpetuates like a white, uh, supremacy, right? Right. Privilege and suppresses anybody who isn't white and straight in his state. It's, it's, yeah, it's really scary. Yeah. And I think really that kind of sums it up back to that conversation we had earlier about charges of hypocrisy, not really working. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, uh, if that's not a strong value of yours. Um, and I think one thing that's really useful is like, there's no one thing that is inoculation against either like bad politics or cruelty or, or causing great harm. It's not reading, it's not history, it's not if you learned enough, you wouldn't do this, which doesn't mean those things can't be valuable tools. Um, just that it, it is a mistake to believe if we could only prioritize this particular subject or this particular activity, we could prevent and forestall any uh, like fascism, any abuses of power, any like, uh, you know, trampling of civil liberties. And, and I think that's really useful that there's, there's just um, history can be used to any number of ends, um, just like anything else can. Um, again, that's not to devalue history, just that it's not, if we all just learn enough history, we'll all get on the same page. It's not always just a question of, do we all need to learn more? Some people just need to be stopped. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Danny, this has been such uh, an inspiring and insightful uh, and interesting conversation. It's been wonderful to, to listen to you and to get to know you. For our listeners who would like to get to know you a little better, um, where can they find you? Um, where can they get your books? And, and where can they find your blog and your podcast and all the other stuff? Just let us know, um, you know how, how people can continue to stay in touch with you. Yeah, I'm around. Uh, I think I'm on Twitter as just like Daniel M. Lavery. I think there's some underscores in there, but you'll figure it out if it's that important to you. Um, and I, um, I have a newsletter called The Chatner that's kind of fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm around some other places, but it's no one. I don't think anyone can remember more than like two things about a person. So I think you should keep your bio short because yeah. no one's going to do it. Well, this has been great. Thank you, know. you so Thank much. Thank you for all being so here. much. I really enjoyed Yeah. Wow, that was so amazing! Um, Super thank you. starstruck. Yeah, I can't. How do we do that? How do we get? I, I'm very proud of this. So amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got to be honest. I I didn't I didn't know what dear prudence is. Or... Really, you do now. You I are do saved. now, and yes. I am enlightened. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh! And Matthew, if you haven't read something that may shock and discredit you yet, which is uh, Daniel's most recent book. It will fit your sense of humor and your literary style so well. You're going to love it. Awesome. Yeah. Everyone go check that out. Well, um, this is it for our first episode in this series. So I think we can all pat ourselves on the back. Mm, good job. Um, we really are all just like too fabulous for this. No, but special <laughs> thanks to Daniel for coming and, and just uh, demonstrating that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, telling, yeah, right. Telling family story and um, the, own journey with spirituality and gender just amazing and giving us some really amazing wisdom about 
what we can do to stand up to injustice, yeah. even when it is so close to home. Yeah. That was, it yeah. was powerful, brave, but it was also good strategy. Yes. If, yeah. the, if for the inner organizer within everyone, we listen to this episode, you'll learn some key details about how to do that. So um, we also want to know what you thought about the episode. One way you can do that is to share in our free Facebook group. Come on and join. We have a lot of fun. We share memes, jokes, stories, resources, and that's called Heresy After Hours. If you just type that into the Facebook search bar, you'll get there and let us know what, um, what advice you might give to your prudy in another world. By now you are used to hearing me talking about rating and reviewing, but this time there is a very special uh, bonus attached to it. If you rate and review us, that's right. If you rate and review us you and you email our producer, Matt, then you will get a free ebook. I feel like there's kind of an asterisk, the terms and conditions apply, where it should be a good review. I can't say for sure, but but if you will let Matt know that you rated and reviewed us, you will get a free ebook as a token of our deep appreciation for you taking the time to do it. Yeah. And so what's the email address, Chandra? That's a good question. What is the email address? It's Matthew at choir.com. And here's what it's going to be. If you give us a five star review, I'll give you one of my better ebooks. If it's a one star review, I'm giving you one of my shit ebooks. All right. <laughs> the shittiest writing I have, you get it. You have Matt's you ebook out of that. Spell choir in this context. Oh, yes. And this has been a problem. Q U O I R, Matthew at choir.com. Thank you for that, Shonda. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm excited. I might have to go and rate and review us just so I can get an ebook. Get that free ebook, yep. Do the one star and see what you get. <laughs> see what you get. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> the transcript of pal. There you go. Oh, exactly. God. The transcript of our pal pal. Can <laughs> <laughs> I get into a book, please? Oh. It's <laughs> no. a horrible. I doubt we get pal's permission. No, he, well, he won royalties. All right. <laughs> Because we know it's going to be a hot seller. It'll be a huge seller. Yeah.